All right, good morning, good morning. Welcome back, Sue. It's good to see you. Hope you had a good trip. All right, we'll sing the hymn. Stanzas one, three, and six. Now may I rest secure, my race completed. Abram's bosom be my bed, where I wait and lay my head, till to Christ my bridegroom wed. Thou art my robe, my dress, my glorious raiment. Who could ever grant in life, walking through this vale of strife, any greater soul's delight. Though now we sow in tears, we shall be blessed, reaping sheaves of joy most fair, while with humble reverence there kneel before the Lamb's high chair. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord and Savior, who has warned us that you will require much of those to whom much is given, Grant that we whose lot is cast in so godly a heritage may strive together more abundantly by prayer, by almsgiving, by fasting, and by every other appointed means to extend to others what we so richly enjoy. And as we have entered into the labors of other men, so to labor that in their turn other men may enter into ours to the fulfillment of your holy will and our own everlasting salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Fitting prayer from St. Augustine during these end times. Because if you didn't look at the bulletin, we are in the end times of the church. The great thing about the church is you tell time differently. So when does the new year begin? Well, this year, Happy New Year, is December 3rd. Actually, November 30th, really, because that's the Feast of St. Andrew, first feast of the new year. So, but the new year really begins with Advent, so we're at the end of the year here. So let's speak our verse of the week, Matthew 7, 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you, who is you? <laughs> yeah, for, you know, to say it with, like they do where I come from, use guys. Okay? If you, I see here, every, you, you say all y'all. But where I come from, it's you guys. All right, you guys. 
if you then, being evil, well, that's not really a compliment now, is it? Why would Jesus tell you guys that you're evil? Yeah, what is it? What would you call it to say that you're born in sin? Original sin, right. And do you know another word for original sin? Is inherited. Inherited sin. So it doesn't matter whether you want to be sinful or not. A sinful mom and a sinful dad got together and made a sinful baby, and you're the sinful baby. And when you get together as a sinful person with another sinful person, you have sinful children. It doesn't mean that your children are horrible little beasts, but it does mean that they have that inherited sin that is just kind of a part of them. So you really are evil. This is the big difference between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. It's in the anthropology. What do we think about man? Are you naturally good and inclined to do good things? Or are you naturally wicked and inclined toward doing wicked things? Now, we would say the latter. You're actually naturally inclined to do wicked things, which is why you should never, ever, ever ask your heart what it thinks you should do, because your heart only knows how to do bad things. But... The world says, well, we're all naturally inclined to do good things. If we work hard enough, we'll do good. So, but Jesus says, you guys are evil. But even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How do you know how to give good gifts to your children if you're evil? How do you know how to give good gifts? And, and this is not, I'm, I'm not just talking about in the church. Firstly, maybe let's see what these good gifts are. If we're going to talk about giving good gifts to children, what would that be? Secular good gifts. Oh, yeah, sure. Like what? Like a new car when you're 16 years old. Okay, like a new car when you're 16. That's quite a significant gift. Uh, there are others that are much simpler and perhaps more. Yeah, good. Food, shelter, clothing, all of those things. The things that your children need. Now you give good gifts to them. And you go out to the store and maybe put some treats in your cupboard for them. And maybe you buy them a Christmas present. Well, they don't need that. What child needs a Christmas? What adult needs a Christmas? It's, you don't do it because they need it. You do it because it's a gift. You know, part of the thing with a gift is it's always an excess. It's never what you need. It's always something above that. Here you go. I thought of you. Here's something for you. It's uh, motivated by love. So you, even being evil, you know how to give good gifts. Back to the original question. So all these good gifts. Food, water, clothing, shelter, some presents. You throw a birthday party and you get cake and you invite people over and you give presents. You have all these things. Why? How do you know how to do that? How do your parents know? Yeah, but how far back does it go? It's inherited. You're on the right track, actually. So I would argue to you, the reason that you know is by natural 
law. How do you know that it's bad to kill somebody? Pardon me? I said, how do you know it's bad to kill somebody? Well, yeah, you have a conscience. I mean, even society agrees that murder is wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to say that murder is wrong. There is natural law. Now, of course, we would say that natural law comes from the God who is law, who built natural law into creation. But there is something there that inherently a mother and a father know how to give good gifts to their children. They know what they are supposed to offer to their children. Now, they may not always be the best at doing it, but at the very least, they know what they are supposed to do. A father and a mother knows that they're not just supposed to kick an infant right out of the hospital to the curb. You know that at least until they're 18, and if you really know, you know it takes longer than 18, <laughs> that you're helping to take care of your children. So you know how to do this, and you're evil. So if that's the case, then, Jesus says, how much more will your father, and this is important, he doesn't say our, and he doesn't say my. He says your. Why? Because it's a personal thing. It's personal, it's intimate, it's love. Your father. How much more will your Father in heaven, again, just keep your eyes and ears open for when your Bible says in heaven, and always ask yourself, do I think it's in heaven or do I think it's in the heavens? I looked. This is in the heavens. How much more will your Father in the heavens give good things to those who ask him? Who are those who ask? Yes, but can you say it better? Can you say it using the language of the verse? Your father, who asks the father? The children. You are the children. Your father. Those who ask are children. And think about the Lord's Prayer, the introduction of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our father and we are his children so that we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. Go ahead and ask me for things. Saint, uh, I think this is Bernard of Clairvaux who says God loves to be asked so that he can give. God loves to be asked so that he can give. Why? Because he loves you because you're his children. So be children and ask him. Okay? Uh, and the answer to the question, how much more? Much. That's always, it's a rhetorical thing. It's always meant to say much. Much, 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 much more. So as good, or as well as you treat your children, and as good a, a, of gifts as you can give to your children, recognize in all of that that you are evil. And if you, even being evil, can do such nice things for your children... Think about what God, who is not evil, can do for his. All right, let's speak this again. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Uh, what is the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Give us 
What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. What's the most important thing about this explanation? God gives daily bread to everyone, including... Including evil people. What? Well, what's up with that, God? Why does he give things, good things, daily bread, even to evil people? Because he loves them. Why does he love them? He's their father. He made them. So here's the deal. I just said earthly mothers and fathers know that they don't get to give birth to a child and then kick it to the curb. Well, I brought you into this world. Fend for yourself now. Everybody knows that there's something wrong with that idea. It, it, it goes against nature. Well, the Lord is the same way. The act of creating means that the Lord binds himself to you. He makes himself daddy to you. He brings you into this world. He can't kick you to the curb either, no matter how much maybe he wants to. And I'll tell you what, this is just the perfect example. My mother, if she had had her choice, probably would have kicked me to the curb many times. But there are parental duties. And love is always stronger than irritation. No matter how strong the irritation may be. <laughs> and not every day. And not every, not every day. <laughs> okay, so God makes you, and by virtue of him making you, he's bound himself to you. So he gives good gifts, one, because he loves, but two, also because he has to play by his own rules. God makes the rules, he plays by them. He doesn't get to kick you to the curb either. He doesn't get to kick the people who reject him to the curb. They're still his children and he still loves them. So he takes care of them too, gives them their daily bread. What do you need to live? I'll give you rain, I'll give you sunshine, I'll give you a house, I'll give you money, I'll give you food, I'll give you clothing, I'll give you what you need to live. And I will also give you even more than that, but it goes to everyone. And you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you see that. What does it say about the sun? The sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. Who does it rain on? The just and the unjust alike. Okay? Uh, yes? Uh, in, in this context, uh, let me run this out here and see what you think of it. The best gift that the Father can give us, what would that be? The best gift that the Father can give us? Yes. His Son. And I would suggest maybe it's our faith. Where does our faith come from? The Father, the Son. From the, from the Son. From the Spirit. It's the faith of the Son, faith. given to us by the Spirit of the Son. And it doesn't matter apart from the Son. So the greatest gift that the Father can give is the Son. Why? Because the Son is what love. The Son is God's love in the flesh. Okay. And if you want to know what God's love looks like, it looks like this: this man hanging on the cross. 
in our flesh. That's what God's love looks like. That's what God's love is. It's the manifestation of love. That's the greatest gift. And everything else is rooted in that and orbits around that. Yeah, and comes out from it, too. Yeah. Uh, so we are praying in this petition, yes, okay, we want our daily bread. But we also pray for the daily bread of everybody, including all evil people. And I love this. We pray that God would lead us to realize this. To realize what? That he gives us our bread and he gives bread to evil people. And that we would receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. So here's what I'm going to tell you, okay? Pray the, fourth or, <laughs> pray the fourth petition and be content with what is yours. And be joyful that other people have what is theirs. The end. <laughs> the guy you hate gets his daily bread too. Be happy that he gets it. Just like you're happy that you get yours. Okay, kids, you can go. Any questions about the catechism or the verse? You know that the ninth and the tenth commandments and the seventh commandment all tie in with this fourth petition. And this fourth petition also ties in with the first article of the creed. And of course, the next part of the fourth petition is what is meant by daily bread, which is everybody's favorite to learn by heart. You probably remember that. What is meant by daily bread? Well, daily bread means everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as... Clothing, shoes. I like Luther's expression, fields of cattle. There was a rural ring to that. You don't see many people today. Fields of cattle. Fields yeah, of it's just land. The new translation is just land. Mm -hmm. Land, animals. Yeah. Um, so all of this, for, fourth petition, first article, seventh, ninth, and tenth commandments, they're all about, really, at their core, loving Jesus, who loves you, and being content with what Jesus gives you. Uh, don't envy what another person has. Don't covet what another person has. Don't envy another person's life. The grass is not always greener. Where is the grass the greenest? Wherever it is Jesus has put you. Where he has put you, that's where the grass is best. How do you know it? Because he put you there. He's the shepherd. He wouldn't have put you there if the grass was not green. But the grass that's green for you is maybe not the best grass for another sheep. So he takes you, little sheep, and he puts you in the place where the grass is the greenest for you. And he takes other sheep and he puts them all around the big pasture where the grass is going to be the greenest for them. So how do you know the grass is greenest where you are? Because you're there. And why are you there? Well, because Jesus put you there. So be content with what you have. I, my mentor explains the ninth and 10th commandments this way. <laughs> he says, the ninth and the 10th commandments basically mean this. <clears throat> the guy who stole your prom date and then married her and then won the lottery and then became a rich doctor and then had a bunch of beautiful children who all became very successful. 
is the guy you should thank God for. <laughs> and thank him for all of the good things that have happened to that guy, even though he screwed you over. <laughs> That's the ninth and the tenth commandments. Don't covet him, be happy for him. He stole your prom date and he married her. Well, you know what? They have a good marriage, thanks be to God. He won the lottery. You've been paying for scratch-offs for years and haven't gotten anything more than five bucks. Well, praise the Lord for him, good for him. You know, maybe you don't need a million dollars. All right. <laughs> I won't repeat it, but I heard it. Uh, all right. We, I want to finish the fourth commandment. We've got so much to do. I want to give you one little quote to set the stage for some of what we're going to talk about. We have two kinds of fathers presented in this commandment. Two kinds of fathers. Fathers of blood and fathers in office. So based on what we've already said about this commandment, how would you read this? I'll ask you the question uh, that the Pharisees asked. What, or no, excuse me, that Jesus asked the Pharisees. Uh, what does the law say? What is your reading of it? Bless you. Fathers of blood and fathers in office. What is that? But who, are, who is the boss and the politician? Are they fathers of blood? No, they're fathers of office. So they are your father by virtue of the fact that they are in a position of authority over you. People get really squeamish when the Bible talks about slaves. And actually a lot of atheists, if you, if you pay attention to the debate scene... There are a lot of atheists, and they will try to discredit Christianity by opening up to Leviticus and reading all the different rules about slaves and how much you should pay for a slave and how much you should pay a slave who works for you and all of that to discredit Christianity because it makes you uncomfortable. And then you read St. Paul, slaves obey your masters. And if there's anything that makes us uncomfortable in modern America, it is... Wives, submit to your husbands, and slaves, obey your masters. Oof. <laughs> How are you supposed to talk about those things? Huh? Slaves, obey your masters. So the Christian can easily say something like this. Oh, well, that doesn't apply anymore because we don't have slaves anymore. Is that, a, is that a good reply or a not as good reply? Do you think? What do you think? Yes? I don't think that's a real good reply, but that's, it was a defined culture. We live in a different culture. Oh, sure. So there's principles and statements and, and uh, important items are still here, but they're in a different Use, different words are used. Yes. Because we don't actually. Yes. Yes. So. Well, Becky? They're part of the masters. 
what was required of the masters. Ah, see, very good question. That's, that's the same question that you ask of wives submit to your husbands. Okay, but it's, it doesn't, that's not the only thing that the Bible says. What else does it say? Husbands, love your wives. Well, then that changes the entire scene so that you don't get to be this kind of a husband. Instead, you get to be the one who actually cares and takes an interest. And the same thing with, with the terms of slave and master. Well, what's expected of the master? It's not just telling slaves, hey, you know what, listen to, listen to what boss man says. It's that the master is also supposed to be behaving in a certain way, and they're supposed to behave in a way that is beneficial for each. That is modeled in love. Can you believe that? Love in the role of master and slave. Now, how can you say that? This is part of the problem with the, squ the squeamishness about slavery, because Americans are squeamish about slavery because of the slave culture in America. But that is not at all close to what the slavery was as described in the Bible. The, the slaves, at least of the Israelites, were treated well. They were treated very well. By whose mandate? <laughs> By God's mandate. There was also the Jubilee year. Does anybody know what the Jubilee year is? The 50 year. Uh, they erased all debts. They erased all debts and let the slaves free. So you weren't allowed to be a slave forever. And masters were not allowed to keep slaves forever. They had to let them go. Everybody got their freedom. But the thing is, many slaves who could have been set free wanted to keep being slaves because they had it so good. Look at Joseph. Joseph is sold into what? Slavery in Egypt. And what does he do in Potiphar's house? He's in charge of the house. Do you want to know something, friends? The slave in charge of the house has more power and more authority than the master of the house. Why? Because the fact that the slave has his job to begin with means the master's not doing any of that work. The master doesn't know what are, what's in his books. The master doesn't know how much money he has. All he knows is what the slave tells him he has. That slave manages everything. That's what Joseph did, but he was a slave. He should have been set free. He was... He had it really good. He had a cushy job. So the, the, the idea that you can look at the Bible and say, oh, well, the Old Testament says this about slavery, you're, you're interpreting that in terms of what the modern idea of slavery is, which is not at all close. Now, the terms aren't dead. Master and slave. What's the relationship between master and slave? I mean, speaking generally. So like when St. Paul says, slaves obey your masters. Well, what's the relationship in play there? Person in charge, person doing work or labor. So when you read Paul's exhortation that slaves obey their masters, can you actually say that doesn't really apply to me? No, why? Because you, in fact, are a slave in the sense that you are under another person's authority, subject to them, beholden to them, and responsible for doing what your boss tells you to do. You don't get to have a job and just make up your own mind and do your own decisions and do whatever it is that you want to do. There is somebody in a, 
position of authority over you. So you listen to them. So those are fathers in office, anybody with authority. Fathers of blood are, obviously, yeah, parents, those authority <coughs> figures that have that authority by natural right, that is, because they gave birth to you. Remember, fathers in office have that authority because it is given to them, not because of natural right, but as a substitute, like a lateral move. So, I, I use this quote in particular because I want to highlight something to you. And that is this, uh, if you're following along, it's one of these bullet points. In addition to the two kinds of secular fathers, the fourth commandment also speaks of a third category of father. And that is, can you guess what? You've got blood, you've got secular, and then you have spiritual. Spiritual father. So the authority and the role of a spiritual father is in the fourth commandment. And this is what the large catechism says. Besides these, that is, fathers of blood and office, there are still spiritual fathers. The ones called spiritual fathers are those who govern and guide us by God's word. In this sense, Paul, St. Paul boasts of his fatherhood in 1 Corinthians. Yet there is need, this is the next uh, quote, there is need that this truth about spiritual fatherhood also be taught to the people. For those who want to be Christians are obliged in God's sight to think them worthy of double honor who minister to their souls. They are obligated to deal with them and provide for them. For that reason, God is willing to bless you enough and will not let you run out. Uh, I have this footnote in here, one passage that I skipped talked about the problem as, as much as you are to honor your spiritual fathers and to use St. Paul's language, double honor to spiritual fathers, that is not an invitation for spiritual fathers to think themselves great or even to let their people make them become great. Sometimes what you see happen is that even an ordinarily humble fella gets to be pretty big in his head. Why? Because his people love him so much and tell him how great he is. And then he gets conceited. And then he thinks himself greater than he really is. Or you also have guys that just come in and think that they're hot stuff to begin with. So Luther acknowledges that pastors are not to seek greatness and they're not called to be great. They're just called to be pastors, spiritual fathers, to love their people, to care for their people, to give them Jesus. That's the job. That's why I say you've got that hallway there and you've got the faces of lots of other pastors who have been here. And there have been more than just those. Those are just the pastors that served the tri-parish, what became Holy Trinity. But you, in your life, have had more pastors, probably, than what's on that, many of you at least, have had more pastors than what's on there on the wall. And you might remember them, but you don't remember everything about them. And I'll bet you that mostly what you remember about them is the things that they taught you, or a line from a sermon, or some advice that they gave you, something like that. And someday, those pictures 
that are hanging in there, including mine, are going to be nothing but faces. Because we'll be so many generations down that nobody's actually going to know who they are. They're going to have to look in the little book that is the history of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. And they're going to say, oh, Pastor Eamon Ferguson. Well, he was here. Boy, that's been 200 years that he was back there. Well, look at that. Okay? Assuming Jesus doesn't come before then. I'm here to be forgotten. Your pastors are not here to be remembered. They're here to give you Jesus. They want you to remember Jesus. We're to be forgotten. We're not here to be made great, but we are here to be dads. We're here to be spiritual fathers. So, Pastor Kinney's Christ in the Home Conference. <laughs> One of the pastors in his circuit told him they had their winkle. That's when all the, that's when all the pastors get together. We do that once a month. Everybody, every, every circuit in the whole country does this. You meet once a month with all the pastors. You're supposed to look at the Greek and study some Bible and then study the confessions or some other doctrinal thing and then help each other with problems in your churches and do you know, stuff like that. So um, he had his winkle on Tuesday and he called me after and he said, one of the pastors in my circuit had a lay person that came to the conference. And he liked the conference, but he said, he said to his pastor, Pastor, I don't know what to think about this. And his pastor said, think about what? And he said, there were a lot of pastors at that conference, and they all called each other father. What are we, what are we supposed to do about that? Like eight, six, eight pastors, something like that? They're all calling each other father. And the guy who was giving the talk was saying it too. He was up there and he would say, like Father Ferguson over here, or like Father Kinney said, or like Father whoever, Father Kilgo, why are they all calling each other Father? And I just think that that's kind of funny because you want to know the only place in the whole world where the Lutheran pastors are not called Father? America. <laughs> it's the only place in the whole world where we're not called Father. And, and a bunch of the pastors in America still do just call each other Father. So all of this is to say... Calling your pastor father is not a Roman Catholic thing. It's right here in the large catechism. Call him father. In fact, I would argue that we need to start calling our pastors father, not pastor. Why do you think that is? Look at the culture for a minute and then tell me why you think I think the term father is so important. Okay, it's more, yeah, it's more intimate. I think it's more intimate than pastor. Pastor is like a job, what I'm to do for you, but father is like the relationship, who I am to you. Yes? <coughs> There's a connection. I can't speak it exactly, but God the Father passes the gift of, of uh, uh, remitting sin and, and so forth to the pastor. So the pastor by is, is actually the father through the transmission of the gifts that God the Father passes sure. to the father, you, in the congregation. Yes, that's fine. Can you think of a very... Th those have been good theological answers. I applaud you. You have good brains. Can you think of something practical? Yes, because... Uh... 
uh, our culture right now is trying to break the family down to Oh, nothing. you've got a star there, honey. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Good! Mother means nothing. And, and, right, so the culture is breaking down. Who can be a father, though? But who can, I mean, who can be dad? What is that typically exclusively used for? Men. Boys become daddies. Girls become mommies. I learned that on Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Okay, so in a culture, especially within the church that has begun to become so accepting of something like women's ordination, why? Because anybody can be a pastor, because a pastor is just the job, that's the role that I play. I am the shepherd, that's pastor, is shepherd. Well, anybody could do that. But not everybody can be father. Now, the Finnish Lutheran Church actually had a conference last year, and they said, we're really going to start pushing the term father hard because we're combating this European women's ordination deal, and we want it to be very clear that the pastor is the father, and that means he is the man. And uh, by the way... Finnish Lutheran Church just had a really great thing happen to them this week, if you've not been paying attention. Two years ago, the bishop, so the bishop of the Finnish Lutheran Church was excommunicated by the Finnish Lutheran Church because he was being a good Christian. In the Scandinavian church bodies, there is, there is a relationship between the state and the church where the state is the church which is bad, because it means that whatever wind, however the wind blows the state, then that's what the state makes the church believe too. So you've got that problem in the Scandinavian churches. You've got that problem with the Church of England. When the state and the church are like this, then it hurts. It always hurts. It doesn't benefit the state. It just hurts the church. So the church has become, in these... Um, state churches, the church has become very secular, so the bishop was excommunicated because he actually was being a Christian. So then he was appointed bishop in the sort of the underground Lutheran Church of Finland, the Mission Diocese, and uh, then he was brought to court with another Lutheran from the Mission Diocese, a, a doctor, a medical doctor, who also served in Parliament because she said that Men are men and women are women, and that homosexuality is a sin. And in fact, she said homosexuality is a sin by quoting a Bible verse that said it. It wasn't even her being creative. They were taken to court by the Finnish high court, and they were acquitted, but the Finnish government allows you, the, the prosecution, to appeal an acquittal which they did, so they had to go back to court, and the hate speech that they were uh, accused of would have actually merited something like six years in prison. <clears throat> and uh, they were acquitted this week, again, unanimously. 
So, praise the Lord. Uh, but if people don't think persecutions are still happening in the world, you're just blind. I mean, I, I talk about this in midweek. There was a, a layperson in Ireland. He was a public school teacher in Ireland who was put in jail. Why was he put in jail? Because he said, men are men and women are women. And he was put in jail for that. And you want to know, that was last year. Do you want to know where he is? Still in jail. And do you want to know what they told him? You can get out of jail anytime you want. You just have to say you're sorry and that, and that trans people are, they can be whatever they want to be. And he said, I will happily spend the rest of my life in prison if it means that I uphold the truth of the gospel. That's in Ireland. That's not even like a third world country. Yes, ma'am. Okay, yes, please, do. They were making cookies or something. Uh-huh. He said to his mom, Mom, why do you become a mom? <laughs> Am I going to be able to make cookies like this? And she said, how do you remember women marry men and men marry women? And he said, well, you said God had a plan for me. Yeah. Well, can you grow a baby in your tummy? If you can't grow a baby in your tummy, then you can't be a mommy. But that doesn't... I that Yeah, probably not. I don't know. Anyway, so Yeah. Well, God has a plan. Sure. Sure. So, pastor is your father, which also, that can be a really, that is always a really good thing. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. Because sometimes, you know, what does daddy sometimes have to do? Sometimes daddy has to pull some pants down and give some spankings. Daddy doesn't want to do it. Daddy says it hurts you, or it hurts me more than it hurts you. And the kids never believe that until you get to be a parent, and then you realize it's just a different kind of hurt. Like, yeah, your bottom definitely hurts more than mine but my heart hurts more than yours, and that's a deeper hurt, okay? So that's also an important thing. Pastors, are, they are responsible for discipline, but the discipline aspect really comes out when you start realizing that a pastor is a spiritual father, that there is a responsibility to discipline. So I have the same responsibility for all of you that I actually have for my flesh and blood daughter through different roles. Excuse me, my daughter, to my daughter, I am a father of blood. To you, I am a father of spirit. But the task that I have been charged with still remains the same. Train up a child in the way he should go. And that means that as a father within my own autonomous household, I will set a good example for my daughter of blood. I will pray in the home. I will make sure that my house is a, is a, a microcosm of the church. And that church doesn't end when I, well, I go out this door. Church doesn't end when I go out that door and walk the 20 feet to my house. Uh, to you, I have the same responsibility, and that is one, model the good Christian life, pray with you, but also then teach you how to do that in your own homes, teach you how to be good children of the Lord, and all of that. So the responsibilities, the duties are the same for the spiritual father. But I, I think it's great to look at this large catechism and to realize that 
hey, you know what, Lutherans actually called their pastors fathers, and that that's an appropriate thing. I don't demand any titles, I just, uh, but you may call me father, and that is just fine. Now, any who are in a position of authority and who are parents in that sense are called to live in the humble fear of God, not as tyrants. This is incredibly important. For the same reason that it's incredibly important to talk about what is the word of God to masters? What is the word of God to husbands? It's never just, hey, wives, do exactly what your husband tells you to do. That's what the Bible says. I mean, that is actual tyranny. That's what the world thinks that you believe. Which is why all of you young people, when you get married and you come to me for your catechesis, because you will, come to me for your catechesis and we'll sit and I'll teach you about marriage and I'll teach your lovely fiancé about marriage too and then we plan your wedding, I will always tell you that the epistle you should have is the one about obedience. Why? It's good for you to hear, but you already kind of know about that. Why else though? What's the bigger reason? Who comes to a wedding? Pardon me? God. Well, yes, God does the wedding. A lot of not Christians. Nobody has a family that is 100% Christian. I don't care how good your family is, nobody has a family where everybody is 100% across the board Christian. Same, same for funerals. It is the same for funerals, but it's, di but it's different. Um, a funeral is about, it, you know, for the people that come to a Christian funeral, the whole point is, how do you die? But when you come to a wedding in the church, it's how do you live, and not only how do you live, but how do you live together in love, which is a foreign concept to the world because the world doesn't know what love is. But you do. So you come to church to get married and then the pastor stands up and the bright, young, shining, happy couple stands there and the people who don't know anything about the church are just kind of shuffling through the book because they don't even really know what they're doing. And half of them feel uncomfortable being there which probably is a sign that they need to come more often. <laughs> Now, why is this wedding 45 minutes? And I say, because there's a lot to say. <laughs> and then they hear, wives, submit to your husbands. And they go ballistic. What? She's a strong, independent woman. She doesn't have to submit to anybody. <laughs> That's why you should have that at your wedding because it teaches a lesson. Because people hear that, and then they hear, and husbands, don't be jerks to your wives. Love them. Here's the fun part about that. <laughs> Peter doesn't tell, Peter and Paul, they don't tell wives to love their husbands. But they tell husbands to love their wives. Which means, you don't, as a husband, you never get 
to say you don't love your wife. Now she might swear up and down that you're the rudest, filthiest, jerk of a bloke, and you still have to love her and be patient with her and do everything with her the way that you would do it in, in the love of Jesus. Which means submitting for her is very easy. And that's a lesson in marriage as a couple becomes one flesh and goes and, and, and submits to Christ as the church. So you're not called to be a tyrant. Husbands aren't called to be tyrants to their wives. Masters aren't called to be tyrants to their slaves. Parents aren't called to be tyrants to their children. The fourth commandment does not give you license to be an abusive tyrant. So here are the responsibilities. Support and provide for all of the needs of the body and all bodily necessities. Sure. Raise up pious men and women who love and who care for their neighbor, primarily by training the youth in the fear and knowledge of God, which means if you want to raise good children and be good parents, come to church and teach your kids to come to church. And don't talk about church like this. Well, we gotta go to church, it's what we do. Don't talk that way because that way is not true. <coughs> so set a good example for your children and love them the way that Jesus loves you and the way that he loves his bride, the church, which is not domineering. What does St. Paul say? He says, children obey your parents. And then he says, fathers, Pardon me. Fathers, obey your wives. I knew a woman for, on Vicarage, very nice lady. She grew up around here. A lot of people actually know her. She, uh, she told me once, oh, yes, my husband wears the pants. Absolutely. I just lay them out for him and tell, them, tell him when to put them on. <laughs> and, of course, there's the old joke, yes, the man is the head of the household, but... Uh, the neck turns the head, right? Uh, so, what was my question? You have, yeah, you, you derailed me. Look what you have done. Oh, right. Children obey your parents. Children obey your fathers. And fathers, what does Paul say? Fathers do not... Abuse. Yes, or ex exacerbate. Yes. Excuse me, exasperate. Do not exasperate. Yeah, exacerbate. They sound the same. Exasperate. Do not exasperate your children. Nancy. I think there are statistics to support this, but couples that live together for several years, they get along fine, everything's hunky-dory, let's get married. They get married, and it isn't very long to where they're getting their divorce because they can't stand each other. Yeah. Do you want to know what Billy Graham's wife said? I love this. Have you ever heard this? She did an interview. You know, Billy Graham was not the best husband, and he wasn't the best father, which, to be perfectly fair, this is not me th throwing any shade, to be perfectly fair, a very large percentage of pastors 
are not the best husbands and fathers. And I will tell you that it includes me. Why is that? Because we get so wrapped up in the duties of the office that often we neglect our families. Here's a really good example. Lent. Do you know how often I see my family during Lent? Rarely, especially Holy Week. I basically say hello to my wife on Palm Sunday and then welcome her back on Easter Sunday evening. And that's a sacrifice that a pastor knows that he's making and that's why a pastor's wife is kind of a calling in and of itself because you have to be a particular kind of a woman to be able to be a pastor's wife because you bear uh, a very significant burden. I mean, there's a, there's a burden obviously that comes along with the ministry itself, but there's a burden that is involved in, in being married to a pastor or in having a pastor as a dad. I mean, here's a burden of having a pastor as a dad. Guess what happens when you start midweek? <laughs> <laughs> you're expected to know everything and there are no excuses and pastor is so charitable with all the other kids but not with you why because he owns you <laughs> okay so Billy Graham was gone a lot because you know he was off preaching and doing stuff so he wasn't home and with his family as often as he uh, as often as he would have liked to have been and after he died, a reporter asked, or it was an interview, uh, somebody asked his wife, did you ever think about divorce? I mean, he was, he was gone all the time. He, you know, he had his quirks. Did, did, you ever just, did you ever just think about divorce? And you know what she said? Murder? Yes, every day. Divorce? No. <laughs> I think that is just the most beautiful depiction of a Christian marriage in the whole world. Murder? Yes. Every day I think about murdering my spouse, but I've never once thought about divorce. Why? Well, divorce, I mean, what a foreign concept. Why would I even, why would I even, yeah, sure, he annoys me, but why would I want to live without him? And in the times when I want to murder him, by the way, my relationship is very lopsided, uh, so typically, it's, it's me thanking God I have such a saintly wife and Carolyn saying, Oh boy, murder, yes, divorce, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, so the times you want to murder your spouse, then you go and you confess to each other and you talk it out and you grow to love each other more. That's why couples that get married, they think that they love each other, but they don't. And you know that they don't because five years down the road they're getting a divorce because they didn't love each other, because they didn't know what love was, and they didn't learn to love each other because they didn't want to, because loving, learning to love another person means learning to give up yourself. There's a really great, uh, I don't want to call it a technique, but pastoral counsel from a, a good pastor that I know, when he does marital uh, catechesis with couples that are struggling in their marriages, Almost always the struggles in the marriage when they come to talk to the pastor about, well, he does this, but she does this. Well, he leaves his stuff around. Well, she's an egg. Well, blah, blah, I want this and I want that. And it's always two individuals that come and the two individuals are at odds with each other, not one flesh together. And uh, one of the best things is, he, he always says, I, I, this is your homework. I want you to do this. I want you to say it out loud 
Anytime that there is something that has annoyed you about your spouse, I want you to say out loud, he or she just made a mistake and I love them. And you do it out loud so that your ears hear it. And he said, you do that for a couple weeks and then you come back and we'll talk again and we'll see if there's any difference. You want to know if they actually do it, there's always a difference. Why? Because you're learning to love them. You're, you're learning to accept them as a person and love them for who they are and bear all things with thanksgiving and love. And to be full of grace and to offer that grace to all. Isn't that beautiful? So, that's husbands and wives. Parents, you're not to exasperate your children. You are not to push your children to the edge. You're not to uh, be cruel to your children, to wield your authority with an iron fist and to use it as a way to cudgel your children. I'm the dad, you're gonna do it my way. You are to behave in love and in grace. Uh, so God wants to have, this is a quote, God wants to have this included in this commandment when he speaks of father and mother. He does not wish to have rogues or tyrants in this office and government. He does not assign this honor to them that is power and authority to govern so that they can have themselves worshipped. But they should consider that they are obligated to obey God. And again, all live on as though God gave us children for our pleasure or amusement and servants so that we could use them like a cow or an ass only for work. Hey, Luther wrote it, I didn't. I have a... I have a uh, so my, my uncle, my mother's youngest brother, he was a huge, he was big time, big time delinquent. Uh, got into a lot of trouble and got married to a fabulous woman. She helped to get his life back on track. He went back to school. He got a, finished his college degree. Uh, it got it in education, went back, got a master's in education and creative writing. And now he teaches, but he, for a while, he was teaching at an inner city school in Milwaukee that primarily, it was a boys school and most of the boys were inner city delinquent boys. And uh, they loved him because he got them, because he was a delinquent. So he knew how to deal with the boys. Well, <laughs> every now and then he would say ass. He would say, what an ass in class. And the boys would go, <gasps> and he would say, what? It's in the Bible. <laughs> in the King James. This shows you how mature my wife and I are. We do our family devotions. My mom got us this beautiful, illuminated family Bible. It's, it's big, it's hardcover. It's got beautiful, beautiful illuminations in it. There's, you know, the old Bibles that has the genealogy in the front. My mom went back and did all the research and filled it all in for us and then gave it to us. That was our Christmas present one year. And we use that, but of course, it's in the old King James. And of course, during, I think it's during Lent when the readings are all from the, the Joseph narratives and then the brothers come to Egypt and we're sitting there. It happens every year. We read this, and the brothers laid it up their asses with corn and hit the road with asses filled with corn. And you're just like, you know. Yeah. Right, the donkeys, they put it, you know. Anyway. 
You don't want to use your children like a cow or an ass, only for work. If we wish to have excellent and able persons, both for civil and church leadership, we must spare no diligence, time, or cost in teaching and educating our children so that they may serve God and the world. Otherwise, he would have no purpose for father and mother. And this last quote, and then I'm going to, we'll go through this brief overview of the estates. Let everyone know that it is his duty on peril of losing divine favor to bring up his children in the fear and knowledge of God above all things. Consider now what deadly harm you are doing if you are negligent and fail on your part to bring up your children to usefulness and piety. Consider how you bring upon yourself all sin and wrath, earning hell by your own children, even though you are otherwise pious and holy. I'll give you a great example of this. This is not training up pious children. Uh, I went to a church once, and on the way out of church, I saw a father smack the back of the head of his son and say, what's the matter with you? You only crossed yourselves five times. You're supposed to be crossing yourselves 13 times during the service. Come on. Is that raising up a pious child? No. I wouldn't be surprised if that child left the church when he turned 18. The church isn't about that. Why do you cross yourself? Not because you have to, but because you get to, because you want to. Why? Because you know what it means. Because it centers around Jesus and what he has done for you and because you love Jesus. Everything that happens in the church has to be motivated by love, including the discipline, by the way, of the spiritual father. If it's not motivated by love, it's abuse. Discipline that isn't rooted in love is not discipline. That means discipline rooted in anger, too, by the way. So when you become very angry with your children, that's the worst time to let your instinct do the thinking for you because you end up doing or saying things that you absolutely will regret because you're not actually disciplining. Now, I want to give you just this simple overview of the estates. There's three, there's the, we talked about this long time ago in vacation Bible school, but there's the ecclesia, the economia, and the politia. Uh, excuse me, politizia. The ecclesia, the ecclesia is the church. The economia, the economia, that's the household. And then the politizia is the society. So you have these three realms. You've got church, uh, that's the place where God is for you. You've got the house, that's the place where God is with you, and you've got the world, the politizia, uh, the secular realm where God uh, works to govern you and to guide you, okay? So you can look more uh, at this on your own, but remember these three estates. There's one place where uh, God is for you, that's in the church. He's not for you anyplace else, which means you can't be a Christian that doesn't come to church because this is the place where God is for you. So come to church. Then you've got your household. That's the place where God is with you. You get him here. He's for you. You go out. He's with you. He guides you. He strengthens you. He gives you your responsibilities. And then he guides you and he governs you. He rules you in the other realm. Okay? Last minute, last minute quick questions. Very good. We'll see you at the altar. Hey, wait. There's a potluck today. Can you uh, let's some, push some of these tables together, turn some chairs around, makes everything easier after service. Thank you.